One of the um, most interesting parts of a pastor's calling is that you get to walk through the journey of life with people. And as we know, the journey of life also includes the beginnings of death. The journey of life is a journey because it ends. There's a reason why um, pastors are there at your birth, there at your wedding, and then there at your funeral. When you're at a funeral service, it's very, very interesting what people say of the departed, of how they impacted them, of how their lives had such significance and impact in their own lives. But it's also the grieving period before and after that's so interesting. It's not just uh, the funeral, but it's the person who's facing down their mortality, truly on the cusp of eternity. And they're asking big questions about their life. Did I live the right way? Did I do the right thing? Will anybody care that I'm gone? Many of us, we know, even though hopefully that day is many, many years and decades away, we could probably put ourselves in that position and wonder the same question. Has our lives, has our deeds, has our words, has our legacy impacted people so much that it'll live beyond our life? And that's why many people wonder, what will they remember me by? Many people also, when that day is approaching, freely confess. They wish they spent more time with people. They wish they spent less time focused on building their own personal kingdom and more time with their family, more time serving people, more time loving people, because in the end, it truly is about love. It's always been about love. Love permeates us. Love motivates us. How many of us know love frustrates us? Love is not easy. It never has been. Yet we are a people designed by God. The Bible says made in the image of God, and that God is love. Our deepest desire in the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts is to love and to be loved. It's that simple. It moves us, shapes us. Sometimes it leads us to do silly, crazy things. Sometimes a love for the wrong thing leads us to do damaging, unhealthy things. When we come to the Gospel of John, this is a gospel written by the Apostle John. As we've already mentioned, that John will be called by church historians and church scholars and church theologians as John the Evangelist, John the Revelator, John the Apostle even. And yet, as John writes his gospel... This would be the last of the four Gospels. This, in fact, would be the first of his five books. And these five books that John writes are the last books written in the New Testament. John doesn't introduce himself as one of the three disciples that Jesus was the closest to, that Jesus trusted the most, that had the highest, it would seem, title among the twelve. He doesn't reveal himself as the one who is the last author of Scripture. He doesn't reveal himself even as the one who was inspired by the Word of God to write Scripture. In the end, he reveals himself throughout this book humbly 
and simply as the one who Jesus loved. This wasn't always the case with John. As we'll see, we're going to walk through his gospel, talk about what his gospel is before what his gospel says, but also talk about who John the Apostle was and how God transformed this young man, he's probably the youngest of the disciples, from a son of thunder to a person Jesus loved. Now, it's helpful to know very basic truths about the New Testament. The New Testament is the culmination and the fulfillment of the Old. We need the Old Testament to understand the New. But when you read the Gospel of John, you notice that this fourth Gospel feels a little different than the first three Gospels. Church scholars call the three first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. Think of synonym. They're very similar. So the four gospel writers are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We should have a basic understanding of that. I always tell people, if you could tell me the first names of the four people in the Beatles, you should be able to tell me the first four gospels, the only four gospels in the New Testament. And we should also talk about and clarify what the word gospel means. Every single day we see bad news on our television set. Every single day, we see fake news on our, t- on our phones. The gospel means what? Good what, church? Good news. So John's version of the good news is 100% historically accurate, rooted in real space, in real time. You just heard John give a detailed account of Jesus feeding them fish. He includes the number, 153 fish. He remembers the size of the fish. Why? Because all of this is rooted in history. Yet John's intent and John's approach, it would seem, is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This was written probably around 80 AD, somewhere around that time. And those other three gospels had been circulating around the church. And while they try to give a comprehensive view of Jesus' life, his miracles, his teachings, John's approach is very, very specific and intentional. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is trying to communicate and articulate certain things that would be for the good of the first century church, but that would be for the good of all, all the church throughout all times. Many of us know this. When you first came to Christ, perhaps you were a new believer, or perhaps you were a seeker, perhaps you were even a skeptic, someone hands you a Bible and says, turn to what? The Gospel of John. Augustine put it like this. He said, John's gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. No matter who you are, whether you're brand new to this book or you've been studying it all your life, there is always more depth. There's always more beauty. There's always more divine knowledge that can be learned from the gospel of John. Not only is John's book one of the most popular books, But I would submit to you inside John's gospel is the most popular verse, John 3.16. Look for it if you're watching football games today. There could be someone holding up a banner, and it's not for Broncos, it's not for Patriots. It says John 3.16. John 3.16 isn't the name of a player on the Chiefs. No, it's a verse that summarizes not only the gospel of John, but also the entire Bible. For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible because it summarizes all the Bible. But John, he doesn't want anyone to be unclear about his purpose. So he actually, at the end of his book, outlines the purpose of his book. He says this in the uh, 20th chapter of this gospel. This is like his purpose statement. Everyone listen. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are written, not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why is John writing this last gospel so everyone would understand clearly that Jesus is the Christ? We understand that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? His mother Mary didn't have the last name Christ. They didn't live on the cul-de-sac with Christ on the, the mailbox of their house. Christ is a title. Christ means anointed king. He is the long-awaited, long-hoped-for, long-sought-for uh, king and Messiah of God's people. He's the Christ, and he's also the Son of God. And that by believing in Jesus as Christ and as God, you may have life in his name. John wants to point the path to Jesus, and in pointing the path to Jesus, he's paving the path to life. He wants us to know life. As we will see even in John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life, and life more abundantly. Or some translations say, life and life to the fullest. So while we dive into John's gospel, we want to remember who John was who John the Apostle was. He's generally listed as the youngest of the apostles. John was the son of Zebedee and Salome. His brother was James, and both James and John were two of the 12 apostles. The brothers, James and John, were originally disciples of John the Baptist. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, and the two sons of Zebedee, so when Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James and John, they were fishermen. They were out fishing. That will have direct relevance for how we will conclude our study this morning. They first met Jesus in a fisherman's boat. Now, it would seem that Peter was solely interested in his job. It would seem that Peter was solely immersed in his occupation as a fisherman. But because John and James were following John the Baptist, it would seem that they had more of a religious bent. Now, religious doesn't necessarily mean real relationship. Religious could mean that you are drawn to the traditions, you're drawn to the rituals. Religious might mean that you even believe yourself to be self-righteous. Because what do we see in John's life? John was not only considered the son of Zebedee, John was considered by Jesus, John and James, as the sons of thunder. So much so, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where they are walking through town and they are filled with so much vitriol and anger and disgust for those half-breeds, the Samaritans. They literally say these words to Jesus. Can you imagine saying these words to Jesus? Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? So it would seem in moments that John is a gentle and kind soul, but when he's pushed, there's a fire in his heart. Maybe some of us can relate to that. Maybe we have a religious bent. 
Maybe many of us look at us like we're kind and gentle, but we walk around with a real anger towards people. We walk around with not just an anger, but a simmering hatred for certain people. Maybe John has been changed by something that we need to remember or return to. This son of thunder would be the last witness of Christ in Scripture. As we see also, John was the last apostle to die, I believe, on the island of Patmos. I believe that's where he eventually died of old age. There's disagreements about that. There's different opinions because it's outside of Scripture. But Tertullian tells us, one of the most renowned and trusted church historians of the first century, that John was the only disciple to not be killed and not be martyred for his faith. What does that mean? Well, you could read about it in Tertullian's works that in his book, Prescription of Heretics, he describes John as taken into the Colosseum, dipped into a vat of boiling acid, and coming out unscathed. It would seem that the Roman emperor didn't think John could be killed. <laughs> and what happened was in that moment, the story goes, once again, it's outside of Scripture, but it is historically reliable, is that John was dipped in this vat of acid, had no burns on him, similar to the story we just studied for six months, right, Daniel? And then that led to such a transformation of faith not only in the disciples, but everyone witnessing that a revival happened in the Colosseum and hundreds of people came to saving faith in Jesus. They turned from saying Caesar is Lord to Christ is Lord. So their only solution for John was we got to ship this guy out of here. We can't kill him. A big vat of acid didn't do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to ship him out to an island and let him die. They had no idea that that's where John would receive receive the revelation from Christ about the culmination of all things. You see, John was the last apostle to die, and tragically, his, his brother James was the first to die. Can you envision this? Can you envision seeing Jesus Christ, your rabbi, your master, your friend, being crucified, being killed, being betrayed, being left to die, and then, of course, as we will see at the end of this study, risen. But just a short time after that, his brother, one of the sons of thunder, would be the first, mar uh, I'm sorry, besides Stephen, one of the first martyrs in the Bible. What we'll see is that John was not deterred by the loss of his brother. His brother was not only close to him, but his brother who was inside this tight circle of three that Jesus poured into, that Jesus invested in. In fact, it would be John, his brother James, and Peter that witnessed Jesus' power at the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus. It would be these three that witnessed Jesus' glory in the transfiguration. It would be these three that witnessed Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. And yet, can you imagine what it's like to continue to preach the gospel, knowing full well that it might cost the life of your loved ones. This did not deter John. Something happened in John's life. You see, as the story progresses, and we will walk through it together over the next several months, you're going to see that John's heart starts to change. It was John that sat next to Jesus and leaned on him at the Last Supper. 
It was John who was the only disciple to stay with Jesus as he is crucified. It was John who Jesus himself, as one of the last words he would say before his death, who Jesus entrusted his very own mother with. There was an intimacy there with John and Jesus. There was a love there between the two. As I mentioned, John was the author of not only of the Gospel of John, but three epistles and then, of course, Revelation. All of these books are the last books written by any of the New Testament writers. So what you have here is an intentional approach to the life of Christ. Now, not only intentional, but you might even find it slightly odd. Because as we dive into John chapter 1, you're not going to see any stories of, she- of shepherds and magi. You're not going to even see stories of Mary and Joseph. You're not going to see stories of Gabriel, the angel, or Herod, the tetrarch. You're not going to see any of that. John's intent is different, and we'll dive into that next week. But absent from the Gospel of John is the, the detail surrounding what we love about Christmas. It doesn't mean there's not a Christmas story there, though. Also absent in John is the detail surrounding uh, the Last Supper of Jesus. Whereas the focus of the birth of Christ is on the Word made flesh, the focus at the Last Supper is how Jesus washed his disciples and his friends' feet. John also, in his book, he doesn't highlight exorcisms. There's not too much demonic battle that's being described here. There's also not many references to parables. John's book is a very unique book. It's the only place that you're going to find Jesus turning water into wine, and it's the only book that you'll find Jesus raising Lazarus himself from death. This book is broken up into two pieces, chapters 1 through 12 and then 13 through 21. What's fascinating is the first half of the book ends with a resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. The second half of the book ends with a resurrection as well, the the resurrection of none other than Jesus Christ. So as we study the Gospel of John, and then we're going to look at John 21 in a second, we might think, all right, the question being presented is, who is Jesus? But if I could nuance that slightly differently, because I think John's intent is, of course, to reveal who Jesus is, but the question out of the gate is not, who is Jesus? No, even in the first chapter, there's seven different titles given to Jesus. So the question necessarily isn't who is Jesus, but who is the Son of God in chapter 1? Who is the Son of Man in chapter 1? Who is the Messiah? Chapter 1. Who's the Lamb of God? Who's the King of Israel? Who's Israel's rabbi? Who is the fulfillment of the law of Moses? And Jesus is every one of those things. You see, he's going to intentionally lay out a bunch of sevens. Everything happens in sevens in the Gospel of John. So there's seven titles that Jesus is. There's also seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. You see how Jesus brings it all back to himself. If he was just an itinerant preacher, if he was just a social activist, if he was just a good example, then he wouldn't be able to make these claims. Do not be fooled. It wasn't Jesus's kindness, and it wasn't Jesus's miracles that got him crucified. It was Jesus's claims. He said this. He brings it all to himself has no problem doing it. He says, I am. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Meaning that if there's life after life, if there's resurrection in the next life, it's because of him. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the only way to the Father. You see, many other religious founders and religious leaders, they'll always point the way to the truth, right? They're always trying to like point the way, the pilgrimage, the program, the religious rules to the way. No, our faith is all about a person. Our faith is personable because it's all about the person of Christ. And that's why when you hear Bible teachers talk about how religion is a hollow shell compared to the true, vibrant union with Christ, meaning that if we're religious but we have no relationship with Jesus, then we don't know God. John will say that over and over and over and over again because it is not a secondary truth. It is not a tertiary truth. It is not only a primary truth, it is the primary truth. It all comes back to Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he is the one who changed John's life. So let's look at John chapter 21, shall we? We'll jump to the end of the story And at the end of the story, Jesus brings it back to the beginning of John's story. Jesus appears to his seven disciples. Here in in chapter 21, verse 1. I love this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, and we'll talk about Thomas next week. Uh, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, both John and James, and the two others of his disciples were together. What were they doing? They were about to do what they used to do before they came to Christ. They were going to go fishing. That's a very, very significant thing. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let's pause right there. Does this sound familiar to you if you've read other gospel accounts? Does this sound interesting to you if you've read other gospel accounts? As we've already mentioned, this is where John first met Jesus on a fisherman's boat. And it would seem after the resurrection, and it would seem even after Jesus said to these disciples, I will make you fishers of men, that yeah, they they needed to eat. Of course, they were hungry, and perhaps that's how they knew to get food. But I don't think that's the insinuation here. I think the insinuation here is even after the resurrection, they're going back to their old ways. They still have not this side of Pentecost, this side of the Holy Spirit's filling them and empowering them, started to become fishers of men. They've gone back to their old ways, and perhaps some of us can relate to that. Perhaps we have seen the grace of God at work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our families. We know the power of God. We know it's true. This is not just some kind of uh, fairy tale. These are not some kind of fables. No, it's true because Christ has revealed his truth in Scripture. Christ has revealed his truth in my life. And yet, for some reason, we just keep going back to what's familiar. Right? Right? We just keep going back to what's comfortable. 
these disciples would go on and change the world. These disciples that are fishing right now would become fishers of men, so much so that there is no church in Colts Neck. There is no two billion worshipers of Christ around the world without these seven fishermen. So it would seem that something truly remarkable is about to happen. Jesus met them on the sea in a boat, and he is going to reunite with them in the same place. Verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. I love this. Jesus said to them, Children, should have been the first sign. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. They should have saw it. This is interesting. We've done this before. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, if you take notes in your Bible, underline that, circle it, and star it. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for, for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So there's very many interesting things here. When Jesus first revealed who he was to Peter, Peter did not have this reaction. If you remember from the, the other gospel accounts and the other gospel testimonies, when Jesus revealed that he was not only the king of Israel, not only the teacher of Israel's law, not only the rabbi and the master, perhaps the Messiah they were looking for, but you know what got Peter's heart? When Peter saw that Jesus was the master over fish. This guy's better at what I do on the first day. I've been doing this all night. I've been doing this for years. Perhaps I've even been doing this for over a decade. And who is this rabbi? Who is this miracle worker? The first time this happens, when they cast the net on the other side, what does Peter say? Be gone from me. Leave my presence. Because I'm a sinner. Now what do we see? <laughs> this would be the rock. This is the beginning of what we're seeing in Peter a leader of the, the church, he is so excited to see Jesus. He throws off his outer garment and he dives into the water. He's not even thinking of the fish. And I'm wondering to myself, that's why John knew exactly how many fish there were, 153, because he was the one that had to haul them in. Peter's so changed. But don't minimize how John reveals himself. John doesn't reveal himself as a fisherman anymore. John doesn't even describe himself as an apostle John describes himself as loved by Jesus. When we think about the totality of our lives, when we think about what good we accomplished, and we wrestle over what bad we have done, there's no greater title, there's no greater knowledge, there's no greater platform or plateau or hierarchy or glory that we could achieve than what John knew. Do we understand this? Like, none of us are ever going to outfluence Jesus. None of us are going to make a bigger impact than Jesus. None of us are going to have as the quite uh, impact. There's been kings and kingdoms, empires and emperors that have longed to have the impact that this son of a Jewish carpenter has had. 
Kingdoms come and go. Christ Jesus and his kingdom continues to spread around the globe. It's the beginning of a new year, 2019. We celebrate 2019 because it's 2019 years away from Jesus. His book that we're studying is the best-selling book of 2018. It will be the best-selling book of 2019. It's the best-selling book of all time. Jesus is the most influential, charismatic, celebrated person to ever draw breath on planet Earth. Knowing all these things, John says, you know what's greatest? He loves me. Like church, when did we get so busy about church that we somehow graduated past this? We never graduate past this. We never move on past this. A couple points of application. Don't give up on those whom Jesus has not give up on. Jesus could have easily heard John and James say, I want God to burn these Samaritans to a crisp and said, hey, listen, you're not part of our inner circle. You don't get it. You're out. I know for those of us in ministry, I know for those of us trying to point Jesus, people to Jesus, I know for those of us in the trenches trying to love people where they're at, it's hard. You want to give up. You want to just run. You want to move from church to church to church to church to try and find the church that's already filled with the perfect Christians, and you could spend not just one life, but 20 lives doing that because you won't find it. It doesn't exist. No, God has called you to continue to love those who aren't very lovable right now. Number two, don't give up because your loved ones have passed on. John is writing this gospel after he has witnessed not only his brother James die, he's witnessed his friend Peter be martyred. He's witnessed the apostle Paul be martyred. In fact, all the 12, gone. We can get stuck in a rut, can we not, friends? When our loved ones have passed, when perhaps those old Christian friends are no longer around us, to just wait until Jesus comes to get us or wait until we come to him. John has his biggest impact at the end of his life. Don't give up because your loved ones have passed on. Last one, we have already mentioned, don't think that we ever graduate beyond the love of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you know that you're loved by him? Now, I don't mean just know about. I don't mean like, all right, Jesus is Jesus and he's contractually abide to love me. No, I mean, when's the last time we have been so overwhelmed and broken by it that it's not only changed the way that we see ourselves, it's changed the way that we see others. If it's been a long time, then it's probably been too long because we can get stuck in a rut. We can go back to fishing. We can go back to churchianity. We can go back to religion when Christ calls us to a living, vibrant Love that permeates our marriage, that changes our hearts, that turns our hatred into true, compassionate, caring kindness. It's not something that can be faked. It's not something that can be conjured. But it is something that John knew. Something that I continually, by God's grace, have to come back to. And it's something that I hope you understand as well. If you want to know more about that love, come back next Sunday. Study the gospel of John on your own. He's going to be the way. He's going to be the one to point you to the way, not only to life, 
but the love of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have no doubt there's some of us here that might see ourselves in that boat. They might see ourselves alongside John, James, see ourselves alongside Peter, and say, well, I believe this on some level, but I'm just going to stay in the boat. Just going to continue to fish. Continue to do what I've always done. Because I'm pretty convinced the Lord can't use me. And I've tried in the past, tried and failed. Father God, would you increase our belief? John is intentional to say this is all about belief. The love of Christ, the everlasting life found in Christ is all directly proportionate to our belief in Christ. So God, would you make our Savior bigger? Would you align our view of Christ with the revelation of Scripture? That our Savior, our King, our death-conquering friend conquered death to not only purchase victory for us, but conquer death because not even death could keep us from his love. Not even death, not even a crucifixion, not even a scourging, not even suffering beyond suffering could keep Jesus from us, from his love for us. Oh, if this doesn't fill our hearts with joy, if this doesn't fill our hearts with gratitude, Lord, then we need to fall on our face and repent. We do. Repentance just means to return. To turn from religion. To turn from hollow obligation. And to return to love. Return to real, vibrant, growing love. <sighs> Cold Community Church, I'm going to invite everyone to please rise. Let's stand together. Let's rise to our feet.